Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, director of CT Media. With me today are Nicole Martin, our chief impact officer, and Russell Moore, CT's editor-in-chief. Today, we're going to talk about new candidates in the Republican presidential primary campaign. We're also going to talk about laws criminalizing homosexuality in Uganda and what the debate around those laws tells us about our culture wars here in the States. And then, for the first time here at The Bulletin, I've got to correct the record on something I said in a previous episode. So stay with us. All right, so last week we dedicated our episode to remembering Tim Keller, but there were some news items that we didn't get to. We wanted to loop back on. We thought they were significant enough to cover them today and to look ahead to next week with a couple more. That is new candidates for the Republican nomination for president in 2024. So last Monday, May 22nd, we had Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina announce he's running. Then Wednesday, May 24th, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida announced he's running. Let's start with Scott. His announcement was a pretty traditional announcement that someone was running. He was at Charleston Southern University, stood in front of a diverse crowd, told a very American story, and focused most of his speech on being critical of the policies of Joe Biden and the left. Russell, let's start with you. What sets Tim Scott apart from the pool that we're looking at right now? Well, I don't endorse candidates, as you know, and so I'm not endorsing or supporting Scott or anybody else, but he is a genuinely authentic Christian man. And I I have great admiration for him as a Christian and as a person. And we've done events together at the gathering here and, and other things in Nashville where he talked about what it meant to be a follower of Christ in a difficult situation in ways that didn't seem to be using his Christianity the way that I've seen it used politically a lot of the time. And in this announcement, as in so many other places, he had a very optimistic sort of morning in America, Reaganish sort of a vision, which isn't really where Republican primary voters have been for a while. They tend to like the bleak catastrophism, make America great again because everything's terrible now. So it was very different. And I think the question is going to be, is there an audience for that anymore? And right now there doesn't appear to be. Well, it's interesting. Another one of the candidates in the race right now is Nikki Haley. And her announcement very similarly was America's great. America's a beautiful place. America's wonderful. We need to tap into what makes us great rather than being cynical American carnage kind of talk. Nicole, as you've observed Senator Scott over the years, what do you think is going to resonate with Christians? What do you think what do you think stands out for the moment? 
I had the opportunity of meeting and hearing Senator Scott around 2017. And at that time, he did talk about his story and about what it means to be raised by a single mother and what it means to, you know, kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I think that message will always resonate with Americans who have this fighting spirit who want to be, you know, we want to be the ones who are the underdogs that win. And we want to root for the ones who are the least likely but stand out. The question is, is this America is already great message going to beat Trump. I think it's wonderful. If if there were no Trump factor, then I think the good kind of wholesome message might fly. But the challenge is, I don't know if they're working hard enough to figure out what is it going to take to beat someone who has a narrative and a PR process that far outweighs anything he's ever done. So I think that's the scary part. I don't think this is a question of you know, does Tim Scott have a chance? I think the question is, does that message, that narrative beat this narrative of Trump? Why is it that the negative narrative does work? Like, because if you had told me, I mean, so when, when people talk about American carnage, this refers to Trump's inaugural speech in 2016, when he just described America as this dreadful, horrendous place to live and and all the work that had to be done to to make it great again. Why do you think, either of you, that that message works for people? Like, what itch is that scratching for a crowd to go, yeah, this is this place stinks? Well, the whole country has been trained by dopamine reactions to catastrophe. And so the entire social media ecosystem that we're in right now, people feel as though things are worse than they actually even are. And so there, there gets to be a market for people who will say, you're not crazy. Things are as awful as you think they are, and it's not your fault. It's somebody mm. else's fault. That gets traction. That wasn't mm. the case for long periods of time in American life. FDR was honest about the depression, honest about the problems, but it wasn't here we go into the darkness. It was we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Reagan same way. It's this positive view of what the future could be and that we're just in a very different time now. And I think you add to that a society that plays on and preys on the fears of others and also plays up what I would say is a false sense of victimization. So not only do you have something to be afraid of, but you are the victim. You've been wronged. And unfortunately, when we apply this broadly to everybody, everybody's a victim and everybody should be afraid, then the people who really are victims, the ones who really do have something to lose, get lost in the shuffle. So I, I think, unfortunately, this is going to be yet another election about the narrative. It's going to be about who can tell the best story of themselves and who can play into, for better or worse, the worst fears and put themselves as the one who can save whoever their audience is out of those fears. And politics seems to be functioning the same way horror movies have always functioned, which is the reason why people enjoy horror films or reading a Stephen King novel, for instance, is because it gives them a place to express the fears that they have in a way that's not immediate Mm -hmm. so they can Mm -hmm. walk away from it. And now this is exactly what's happening in the political space, usually for most people just in terms of social media posting. But somebody is there telling me a nightmarish, scary story that sort of gets that out of my system and I can move on. 
That's so mm-hmm. true. Like your dolls waking up yes. at night or or your children turning into demons. Like, yes. And it's, it's the horror that preys on the seemingly innocent that turns evil. Yeah. So nobody mm-hmm. is safe at any time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's always the case where that then gives an opening for demagogues, authoritarians, totalitarians, mm. because if you have people thinking everything is not just a catastrophe, but it's a catastrophe that can't be fixed. We can't do anything about that. And you see that right now on both the right and the left. The right has this very dark sense of the culture's gone. And the far left has this sense of no matter what we do, the country is always going to be irredeemably racist and driven by power. When you have those two visions, then you have to have somebody who can come in and say, nobody else can fix this, but I can. Mm -hmm. And even if I can't fix it, I can at least give you the kind of power that's being wielded against you. And it becomes this Nietzschean struggle that just is very, very different from the vision of, say, Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address or the second inaugural. It's a very, very different vibe. Let me push back on that in this sense. Joe Biden didn't run that way. No. And he won in 2020. Mm. So is this something that's unique to kind of the the appetites of the GOP? Yeah, I mean, you you have this in the Democratic Party as well. But one of the things that we saw, not just in 2020, but in 2022 as well and in 2018, is that there's a very loud online presence that has a darker view of American life. But the sort of Noam Chomsky view of America as villain isn't working there in primary voters, largely because of African-American vote, being led by the Mm -hmm. African-American vote that does not have that view of reality. And that's what works with suburban swing voters, which is Mm -hmm. why Biden won in 2020 and why the every election since has largely swung towards Democrats, because Mm -hmm. people do still resonate with that optimistic message. But There's a base problem in the Republican Mm. Party, even though Tim Scott would win a general election in a landslide, but he first has to get through a primary. And so you come up against the Jeb Bush problem there. Mm. Uh, Jeb said in, in 2015, I'm willing to lose the primary to win the general. And Mm. he did. Yeah, I was about to say, I mean, you you look at Tim Scott against that, and he does run against it in almost every single way. He's well-loved by all of his colleagues. I mean, he's considered one of the most likable guys in in the Senate. His political message has consistently been a positive message. He's an African-American and a Republican, which for, I mean, he's the only elected African-American Republican in the Senate right now. So he has all these different ways that, that he runs against a narrative that, I would have thought 12 years ago for sure, all of those would have sort of been marks in his favor and made him stand out. Does he have a chance? Is there a path at this point? Or would you just look at it now and just say, I think there's too much toxic energy running the wrong way? I mean, I think one of the things we've learned over the past several years is we can't say there's no way that fill in the blank can happen, almost <laughs> almost regardless of what is in that blank. So I, I think that what Tim Scott's theory of the case is, is that he will be well-funded, and he is, he's not going to lack for money. And if he can break through in Iowa, 
then that will enable him then to go on to South Carolina and somewhere else. But but the, the problem is you can't keep pushing back where the breakthrough is. It has to start right away because mm-hmm. by the time you get into Super Tuesday, if Trump is still standing, Trump's dominee. But I think the theory of the case is I think what Scott's looking at, even what DeSantis is looking at, what several others is to say, well, look at 2007. Rudy Giuliani and Hillary Clinton were unbeatable, it seemed, <laughs> in terms of the polls. But we ended up with Barack Obama and John McCain. So I, I think they're holding on to that. Or 2003, 2004, Howard Dean was way out ahead in the polls. John Kerry seemed to be gone. He came out of nowhere. Yeah, but you didn't have this much of a poll domination in any of those cases. And you also didn't have a, I'm trying to think of a a more neutral word than cult of personality, but but that's what it is. So you have a mass of people who no matter what, I mean, David Frum said last week, there's a very good likelihood that Donald Trump will accept the Republican nomination with an ankle bracelet on. Mm. And someone else in responding to that said, yeah, and what he'll do is stand up and pull up his pant leg and say, I wear this for you. And the people will, I think Michael Steele said that, and the people will just go berserk with applause. So that's the reality. If you've got 35% of the people who really will, in a Republican primary, follow the Fifth Avenue rule and have Mm -hmm. that he can shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and they won't care, might even like him better. And Mm -hmm. you've got a bunch of other people running against that. It's very Mm -hmm. hard to see how it how it breaks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially if it's all split. Yep. So, all right. Well, then, moving to Wednesday of last week, then <laughs> Governor Ron DeSantis entered the race. DeSantis chose to make his announcement on Twitter Spaces. Uh, for those who are not familiar with Twitter Spaces, this is inside of Twitter. Twitter Spaces is an audio platform that's embedded in there. Not a lot of people knew how to access it. DeSantis mm-hmm. and others had predicted that millions would tune in. They did not. Eventually, about 300,000 people tuned in, but this was after 20 minutes or so of technical glitches, not having enough bandwidth. Lots of hay has been made about the launch itself being a failure. We could talk about that if, if you'd like. I'm, I'm not sure that it matters that much at this point. It, you know, those things are quickly forgotten. DeSantis is the one that a lot of Republicans, a lot of very conservative, even MAGA-type Republicans are looking at as the real hope to beat Trump in the nomination. What is it that people are looking at DeSantis and saying, this is what I like about the guy, this is why I, I want to get behind him? Well, I don't really agree with you that the Twitter Spaces launch is quickly forgotten because mm-hmm. it ties in with some other things. And so anytime that there's something that reinforces a narrative about you, and so you add that it wasn't just that the launch didn't work. It's that it, when it did come on, it was just awkward sitting there. And it reminded me of that show from several years ago, Nathan for You, with Nathan Fielder, who comes in and helps business. So, because the whole point of that show is just, ee, I just cringing watching this. 
And you add to that the really awkward diner in New Hampshire where he says to the guy, what's your name? It's Billy. Okay. And walks on. And so there's there's that that a lot of people are concerned about, too, that how are you really going to be able to connect with people with that kind of just awkwardness. Can that be overcome? Sure. But right now you have a number of challenges. I mean, one of them being DeSantis can't even decide how to pronounce his own name. I mean, (laughs) there are conflicting (laughs) videos of him saying DeSantis and DeSantis. And when reporters are asking the campaign, they're getting conflicting answers. So (laughs) we need to to at least know how to pronounce your your name. And then beyond that, there's a sense of he's looking, as many people pointed out, he's looking beta male in a primary that very much is about this heightened sort of Mm -hmm. um, punch them in the mouth kind of masculinity. And when he's criticizing Trump without really criticizing Trump and using this sort of passive aggressive veil language, and Trump just comes back with calling him Rob, you know, I think intentionally, like I can't even bother to remember what your first name is and punching at him it just looks really weak. So he's going to have to figure out what the niche is for him. And it can't just be decaf Donald Trump. It's got to be some reason for people to say, we want you. And why he was doing so well before, right after the election, and polls are showing this, focus groups are showing this, there's a sizable group of people in the Republican primary electorate who are saying, we don't want to distance ourselves from Trump. We don't want to say we made a mistake by electing Trump, but we want to move on. Mm -hmm. And he's got to find a way to reach those people instead of just saying, I want to fight for the same 35 percent. That's never going to go anywhere with Donald Trump, no matter what. I just on the pronunciation of his name last night on Truth Social, Donald Trump posted a very classic Trump truth, truth, which the fact that those are called truths is The subject of an entire other episode. But this is what he wrote last night. He said, have you heard that Rob DeSanctimonious wants to change his name again? He's demanding that people call him DeSantis rather than DeSantis. Actually, I like duh better, a nicer flow. So I'm happy he's changing it. He gets very upset when people, including reporters, don't pronounce it correctly. Therefore, he shouldn't mind DeSanctimonious. <laughs> and it just, to me, it just... You know, if you're not a Trump fan, of course, you read that and you go, what, what is this nonsense that yeah. this guy's wasting his time on? But I think for the Trump fans, for the Trump supporters, this is mm-hmm. why they love the guy, mm-hmm. because he's looking at, at what you just called out as a very clear weirdness inside the DeSantis campaign, which is like, how do you how, can we just agree on how to say the guy's name? Trump's able to just make this rollicking joke out of it. And it works for Trump. You know, it, it's yeah. it's not like it hurts Trump to go on a on a rant like this. It actually works for him. It gets his supporters riled up, and it continues to make DeSantis look weak. Well, especially when he won't punch back. I mean, the Trump campaign was attacking DeSantis this week for the fact that he said positive things about the nomination of Christopher Wray to be head of the FBI in mm-hmm. 2017. Donald Trump nominated Christopher Wray to be (laughs) director of the FBI. He was saying positive things about Donald Trump's nominee. And so the Mm -hmm. Trump campaign is saying this shows why he's disqualified because he couldn't see how bad Christopher Wray is. And DeSantis isn't turning around to say, you're the one who nominated him. 
there's such a fear of Donald Trump. There's a fear of offending him and offending his base that politicians can't even do what they're supposed to do. The game of politics requires that you find the weakness and make it your strength. And DeSantis, by not doing that, makes himself weak. It's mind baffling that you have so many weaknesses that you could point out about Trump and nobody is willing to say, people, do you see this? I'm not going to be that. They're just kind Mm -hmm. of all like, well, it's going to be all right. You can still trust me, though. That's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it seems to me like DeSantis's big problem is he hasn't committed to a persona. I mean, I think that's part mm. of it. I think if Ron DeSantis decided to say, I'm boring, but I know how to win and I hate the people you hate and let's just move on from Donald Trump and didn't try to play any of the games, didn't do the like the messianic campaign ads and stuff that he's done, like embrace the fact that you're boring. But point to the fact that you can win when everyone else is losing and that you can pass policies that people like and that you have a record that Republicans, for the most part, really, really like. To me, that's a way to sort of get above the fray of it. Instead of catering to the Elon Musk slash Trump core of this party, that I think the average, you know, it's the problem people have said for years about so many of these campaigns. It seems like DeSantis is so caught up on what's going on online and on Twitter, and on the Joe Rogan show, rather than where ordinary everyday people are living, who go, oh, looks like Florida got through the COVID thing pretty well. I I like that. I like that about Ron DeSantis. I'll vote for him. It all comes back to trying to play this game to tiptoe around Trump. And the other reality, too, is that Trump has literally lost. His candidates have literally lost everything since 2018. Yeah, but you can't even acknowledge that. Yeah. And, and that's what DeSantis is trying not to do. He, he said in, in some event, he was trying to make this case about this culture of losing. And he said, we lost in 2018. We lost in 2022. In 2020, Joe Biden became president. Became president. I mean, you, you can't even you can't even acknowledge, yeah. hey, Donald Trump lost in 2020 Absolutely. because then you're going to deal with all the backlash about the stolen election conspiracy theories. And it really puts somebody in a very difficult place because they know where the base voters who turn out in primaries really are. And that means you can't get what the real issue is, which is that Donald Trump is morally and mentally and temperamentally and ethically and in terms of competence unfit to be president of the United Mm -hmm. States or anything else. You can't Mm -hmm. say that with that base. So that leads to this sort of flailing around. And, you know, maybe somebody will get some sea legs and be able to find out how to do it. But so far, it's not working. Well, we've got two more that are going to enter the fray next week, one of whom has made some more direct criticisms of Trump than others. And that would be Chris Christie. The other name expected to announce next week is Mike Pence. Russell, these are two politicians that you've known personally as well. What should we expect to see? Let's let's start with Pence. What should we expect to see from a Pence campaign? Is he going to run at Trump? It's hard to see how he does, except in, again, these vague categories where, where candidates talk about we need to stop losing 
but they won't say who's causing the losing <laughs> or we need to have character and we need to have a sense of America's leadership role in the world as Pence has been doing, but aren't able to say, well, who's the alternative to that? Who's stopping that? So mm -hmm. it's hard for me to see. I mean, I know a lot of my friends say, oh, you're way too easy on Mike Pence. I hear that every single day. And that's probably true. But I don't agree. I wouldn't have done it, uh, served as vice president, but I get why he served the way he did. He really did have this sense of, I'm being respectful of uh, authority. It's in the country's interest to support the president. I think that's what was going on in his mind. I think he was taking the model of George H.W. Bush, who was completely loyal to Ronald Reagan. And he was. I mean, it's not just that Mike Pence never said anything negative about Donald Trump in, in public. He never said anything negative about Donald Trump in private to anybody that has ever been in a private conversation with him that I know of. He certainly never did with me. And he also not only did that, but would speak very positively about him and would often say to me, I know you have these views of him, but he really is a good guy. And he would try to make the case for Donald Trump. And I think it was coming from a sense of moral duty. That also is the reason why he didn't go along with the January 6th plot to overthrow the election. It's just a question of does that sense of duty, fidelity, responsibility, morality, does that have any audience in a Republican primary right now? And it mm -hmm. does not seem that it does. So it's almost as though what Pence has, unless things change, Pence is bringing in a genuine, authentic Christianity that actually is a negative, even with the conservative Christian voters that are mm -hmm. out there right now who really do want somebody who seems to be unmoored by conscience and morality. So that's a very much an uphill climb. And I mean, as, as a friend of mine said, if you have to have security to walk into a Republican Party meeting, you've got quite a climb in front of you. <laughs> and, and and that's certainly the case for Mike Pence. I, I hope I'm proven wrong. And Chris Christie, Christie's theory of the case is, I think he knows he's never going to be the nominee, but he knows the way he is one of the best debaters, one of the best prosecutors, in the country, he absolutely eviscerated Marco Rubio before New Hampshire in 2016. So I think he thinks I'm going to get on the stage and I'm really going to prosecute the case against Donald Trump. The question is, will he even be on the stage? Because they're going to have to be polling benchmarks. You're not going to be able to have 12 people on a platform. And so somebody's going to be filtered out. Is it going to be Christie? And with both Christie and Pence, they have the problem that they've made all of the enemies on the Trumpist side, but they had already made all the enemies on the anti-Trumpist side. And so mm -hmm. it's really hard to see, well, where's the constituency unless you really say, hey, look, I was wrong. And mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't really see that happening. I think the average, sadly, the average American is thinking, all right. When I turn on my television and it's the presidential debate time, who's going to be smart enough, strong enough, have enough guts 
to push against Trump? Who is it going to be? So you'll have Tim Scott. He'll say, oh, you know, I fought the lions and I fought the tigers and I'm going to fight you too. Will that work? You'll have Nikki Haley that's like, you can punch with your fist, but I can kick with my heel. I mean, she literally said Mm -hmm. that. Will that work? Is that enough? And then you've got Chris Christie who actually might, to Russell's point, really debate well if he makes it. And then you've got all the other players that nobody really knows. And then you have Mike Pence who may not push against. I just, I can't see a debate where Mike Pence says, no, you are wrong. I hope you're right. I hope that, you know, on the debate stage, you know, people develop courage and real guts and that they're not afraid of what's going to happen after or what social media will say. I, I hope. But again, I think this is all about the debate stage, which makes this election feel, again, so spectatorish, so entertainment style, so grab your popcorn, sit back and see who wins the fight. It's another election that's going to lack principle and value. And what are they standing for? And what do you stand for? And what do you need? Because at the end of the day, it's going to be all defense. Oh, please, God, let somebody beat Trump. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm really trying to be optimistic. I'm an optimistic person. Yeah. But I don't know if anyone has the guts or what it's going to take to fight against this movement that is Trump. And I think there's a lot to be optimistic about when we're talking about the country. Mm -hmm. I mean, if if Mm -hmm. you just look at where the country is in almost every metric, they're really not yielding to these extremes. And that seems to be the case more and more. The problem, though, is in primary elections, you're not dealing with the country. You're dealing with one very specific part of the country and the way the system's set up now, you have to get through that in order to face the country. Joe Biden was able to do that because he understood there's a way that I can bypass the very online and Mm -hmm. can get the people who actually know how to touch grass, who are in South Carolina, uh, beginning in South Carolina and then everywhere else. And there are a group of people who really do want a boring, competent figure. And his theory of the case turned out to be right. But we have to remember, this is a former vice president of the United States who still was behind an 80-year-old democratic socialist, independent for uh, several months leading up to that. And so the country's in a different place than the parties are, but you have to get through the parties to get there. It'll be interesting to me. I mean, I think the pathway for Christie, Trump is the pathway for Christie, because not only does he have to have the courage to take the swings at Trump, which he's continually kind of testing out day by day, it seems, but Trump is the way he takes out everybody else too. Because yeah. if I'm Chris Christie and I'm on the debate platform, and I've got Mike Pence over here and Donald Trump over there. I just look at Mike Pence and go, this guy wanted to kill you. He was trying to mm-hmm. get a mob to kill you. You don't have anything to say. I mean, that's, right. there's an easy way to eviscerate most of these other candidates who, so long as they go on, you know, sort of their tacit silence about Trump. And there's something about, I mean, I remember when Jerry Brown, former governor of California, was trying to make the case that Hillary Clinton was corrupt in the Rose Law Firm in Little Rock during the 1992 primary debates. Bill Clinton takes his finger out and says, you're not even worthy to be on a stage with my wife. (laughs) And it Mm -hmm. really worked for him Mm -hmm. because there were a lot of people who said, yeah, this guy, nobody's going to get up there and talk about his wife and him just sit there and take it. It's the difference of Mike Dukakis when 
Bernie uh, Shaw says, what would you do if your wife Kitty were murdered? And he says, well, I think you know my position papers on the death penalty. This was very different. It was a human sort of, I'm going to stand up for myself and for my people. And when that doesn't happen and it's sidestepped, I think there are a lot of people who see it as weak and inhuman. Yeah. Well... Buckle up. We've got another year or so of it to go. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison-Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're we're in in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Okay, this past week, the president of Uganda signed a bill into law to crack down on LGBTQ citizens. Essentially, homosexuality was already illegal in Uganda, but this law calls for a lot more stringent punishment of practices. It calls for imprisonment for anyone who engages in same-sex relationships, up to a decade for attempting same-sex relationships, the death penalty for what it calls aggravated homosexuality. But moreover, it calls for up to 20 years in prison for anybody who promotes homosexuality, a, a really vague provision that could put human rights advocacy groups and NGOs that provide AIDS treatments. They could all be at risk for things like this. Russell, you you wrote a little bit about this this week after Ted Cruz tweeted about it. Tell us what you saw happening in the story. Well, I think there are two parts to the story. I mean, one of them are the things that you mentioned. This is morally wrong human rights violation against people made in the image of God. 
But you also had this phenomenon in which when Ted Cruz said that, said it's horrifying, this Ugandan law, he had immediate backlash taking place on social media of people, allegedly conservative Christian people saying, uh, why are you selling out, Ted? Why are you saying this, Ted? Has your account been hacked? One person saying, well, then your problem is with God because Mm. God is the one who said that in the book of Leviticus, any male who lies with a male as with a woman is to be put to death. So your problem is with God. And the problem with that is that you're not only doing some horrific human rights abuses with that kind of, of language, you're also twisting and violating scripture. So if the Bible is actually what the Bible claims to be, which is a understood in terms of redemptive history, and you've got a theocratic kingdom of Israel meant to be separated out from the rest of the nations with a different civil code and with a more direct manifestation of God's judgment in a variety of areas, and you don't see the shift of covenants, then you're misunderstanding the scripture. And not only that, you're coming into a place where you don't understand Jesus at all who says, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, or John says, did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that through him the world might be saved. And you have a very clear differentiation in places such as 1 Corinthians 5 between sin and crimes. You also have a very clear differentiation between the power that the church has. The church does not have the power of the sword and isn't to adjudicate moral questions with death, violence, imprisonment, and those sorts of things. So that when you have in the Corinthian church a man who is part of the church who is doing one of the acts talked about in Leviticus, there's not a mandate to imprison the man to stone him, to put him to death. Instead, it is deal with this in terms of who you recognize as a brother in Christ. Seek his repentance. At the end of the day, you may have to say he's not part of our church. He's using the language of Leviticus, purge the evil from among you, talking about spiritual church discipline, not about some sort of violent act toward people who disagree. So that sort of rhetoric gives a false impression of Jesus, and it also violates the actual inerrancy and authority of Scripture. Even with people who completely disagree with us on a Christian sexual ethic, and I hold to the traditional Christian sexual ethic of the past 2,000 years, I believe in the authority of Scripture and the teaching of the church on all of these things. If what we do with that is to say the people who disagree with us, whether that's in terms of premarital sex or extramarital sex or any other deviation from one flesh marriage, that those people are to be harassed and hounded with the instruments of the state rather than our bearing witness to here's a way of Jesus that is true, good, and beautiful, then we're veering off of our mission We're ending up empowering people who are harming vulnerable image bearers, 
And we're actually ending up with even more death and destruction. As you mentioned, AIDS relief efforts, which up to this point have been monumentally important in saving life in Africa, are going to be stymied by this. So if we can't say this is wrong, killing gay people is wrong, then we've really sort of lost our moral compass. And, you know, this this seems like... If we step back, you know, 500,000 feet or so and and look at what's really happening, this is the danger zone of rhetoric against the other. So when you build a rhetoric and, and I dare say a theology against the other as evil, whether that other has to do with a sexual orientation or racial or ethnic makeup, or if the other is just political views, when you build up this momentum against the other, we're going to kill them. Then you bring that crowd to the edge. And then I think, unfortunately, when you get to the edge, there are some people in that crowd that say, we're at the edge, let's jump. This is January 6th. This is all of these movements where you build on the fear and the fear. You've got to get them. You've got to get them. And then you get to the point where somebody actually wants to do something about they They actually believe you. And you have to have, you have to have leaders who stand up and say, no, 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 no. That's not what we mean. So I am grateful that there are people on various political sides willing to stand up and say, this is not what we mean. Because the deeper fear is, what crazy manifesto is going to be written based on this law that's going to lead to another mass shooting. What person is watching this saying exactly, Uganda's got it right, and my politician has it right, and my pastor has it right, so therefore I need to annihilate the other. This is the stuff that gets under my skin. We don't speak up fast enough, or we don't speak up in a unified way against violence against others. We've got to learn a theology that embraces the other, regardless of whether or not you agree with, with what they're saying. I mean, I think about Jesus in John 8, and I know there are a lot of people who don't think that uh, the account of the woman caught in adultery is in the original text. I do. I, I do mm -hmm. think this is a I genuine uh, text. And the way that Jesus responds to those who want to stone that woman, which is to say, let you who is without sin cast the first stone. And there's a dropping of the stones. I mean, uh, there, one of the things that Romans 1 very important in this conversation about sexuality, but it's Romans 1, it's Romans 2, it's Romans 3. What the whole argument is doing is showing the universality of sin and rebellion against God. And so when you have this sort of uh, world where a porn-addicted sexually decadent America, including allegedly Christian uh, Americans, mm -hmm. are wanting to say, yeah, let's cheer on the killing of people who are sinners in a different way than I am. I mean, the Bible just pierces through that sort of conscience and says there's a real problem with judgment seat of Christ and judgment day that reveals all of this. Yep. And when you, when you unpack what you're saying, Russell, Jesus is he takes his greatest anger out against his own. Yeah. He's knocking tables over in the temple, not in some Gentile, you know, yeah. um, food hall. He's he's calling the Pharisees and the Sadducees whitewashed tombs. He's not doing that to the Syrophoenician woman. So there's room for anger. There's room for, I don't like that. But when it comes to the other, there's a graciousness that even Jesus says, let's train them up. And then when you're in the house, now I've got to pull out the whip. I mean, that's Nicole's interpretation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's it. That's 
a direct teaching of 1 Corinthians 5. Paul yeah. says, what do I have to do with judging the world? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is those within the body of Christ that that's I right. judge. I mean, and and that's exactly consistent with the way that Jesus is living and with the great commission that he's given to us. So part of the problem here, and I think this, this goes beyond even the extremes of the Ugandan situation. Part of the problem is we have given up on evangelism. Mm. And we have given up on the power of the gospel of bearing witness to the truth and instead want to use the levers of some kind of power to coerce people to pretend as though they're in agreement with us Mm. Mm -hmm. or that they don't exist. And that's a that's just very different from the Great mm-hmm. Commission. Let me speak to that because I, I think one piece of context to this that I keep thinking about is that w- this conversation takes place. And if you look at like the well, I'll put it this way: part of what made this, I think, make news is that Ted Cruz, mm-hmm. who is a big time culture warrior in the United States over LGBTQ issues, is the one making the argument that this is horrific, evil, and wrong. And I think what you're saying and what we would agree to here is that there's actually something utterly consistent in many ways about Cruz's point of view, that it's <laughs> that this law is evil on every imaginable level. And yet there are there are places, I mean, not everything, I'm not endorsing Ted, Ted Cruz's arguments, but it is interesting to think about this in the context where, you know, a month ago you have this Bud Light thing where they are featuring a trans activist on their cans. Target is currently the subject of protests and boycotts because of Pride Month clothing, trans-friendly sim- swimwear, brands they're platforming. And then you just had this controversy around the LA Dodgers platforming this group, celebrating or honoring this group called the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, a, a group of drag queens that dress as nuns and do social work. It seems like part of the backdrop for what happened around Ted Cruz's tweet is that we as a culture are trying to work out the tensions between an aggressive advocacy from LGBTQ advocates and that is happening in a way that it's kind of coming into our living rooms, right? When a mom is walking in the front door of Target and the first thing she sees is a pride display and it has, again, tuck-friendly swimwear and and all Mm -hmm. of this kind of stuff, when you're going to an LA Dodgers game and they're honoring the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, that does these very performative, profane kinds of things. All this, this is sort of in your living room in a way that, that lots of people are reacting. I mean, I mean, uh, Bud Light sales plummeted in the last two months mm-hmm. and they're, they're calculating very real math on the mistakes that they have made. And so I think that backdrop of people going, I don't want this stuff in my living room is informing the way people are looking at these other circumstances. They're distinct entirely. Yeah, but that's not the fault of a Ugandan gay teenager. No, no, I, exactly. I'm yeah. not. I'm not disagreeing at all. You know, one of the things I think that the the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence thing is horrific and ridiculous and should not uh, should not happen. I think though about the day that the Obergefell decision was handed down legalizing same sex marriage. I was at the Supreme Court. And I walked around the corner. I could hear a bullhorn, somebody screaming into a bullhorn. And I just said to Matt Hawkins, who worked with me, I said, oh, I hope that's not one of ours, <laughs> uh, meaning a, 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 an evangelical Christian. And I went around the corner. It's Westboro Baptist Church. 
mm. you're gonna you're gonna burn in hell and we're gonna enjoy it when we see it all of that kind of thing and i just said see this is why we lose everything because those are the people who are standing out claiming to be representing Jesus. Well, as soon as I said that, I turned around and there were the sisters of perpetual indulgence, nun drag queens coming out. I said, eh, everybody's got their, uh, their crazies here. So, so you know, it's, there's a little bit of that uh, around for everybody. But the problem is if you're not able to say simultaneously, this is what we believe is true, good, and beautiful, and what the Bible teaches about marriage and about family. And people who disagree with me on this bear the image of God and ought not to be harmed and hurt. Then you just yes. don't understand Jesus, who says right. to the woman at the well, both go get your husband. He's pointing out. You, mm-hmm. you, you've had five husbands. The man you're with now is not your husband. He knows that. Go get your husband. Mm-hmm and come here. Mm. And if you, mm-hmm. if, you, if you take either part of that out, you end up with something that is sub-Christian. Yeah. So if all that Jesus says is, come here, there's no demand of you in terms of what it means to pursue holiness, that's sub-Christian. And if all that one does is to say, I'm pointing out your sin and how you fall short of the glory of God, but without that sense of love and redemption and reconciliation, that's uh, Christian. And so when we see everything in terms of the whole world is a battle between the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence and Westboro Baptist Church, Mm. and that's it, Mm -hmm. then it's no wonder that you end up with people who are very cynical rather than having, hey, wait a minute, there's actually a very different word that's being spoken here called Mm -hmm. for God so loved the world. Yes that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That cuts through all of that. And when we lose it, we end up crazy. This is spot on with a conversation I had yesterday. So I had a conversation with a young person yesterday who was very upset that our church doesn't celebrate Pride Month and said, if you say you love people every single Sunday and you celebrate every single month there is, even in our church, you're celebrating Asian American heritage and you're celebrating Pacific Islanders and you're celebrating Hispanic heritage, but you don't want to celebrate Pride Month, what kind of people are you? This is a room full of people. One person in the room said, we just don't do that. And I can't believe that you even asked the question on why we do that. So I'm sitting here in this conversation like, Lord, this is how it goes. The one person asks, why don't you? And the vigilant Christian says, because the Bible says there has to be another way. And the other way is exactly what Russell said. It is the conversation with Christ that says both, I need to point out what's wrong, but also invite you in to a conversation. So I'm sitting in that moment and I was like, you know what? I'd love to hear more about what you have to say. And I'd love to share with you what I believe God says, but at the end of the day, this is a conversation about love. And I want you to experience that love. And I walked away thinking now, all right, when you make statements like that, you're going to be demonized by left and right. You're going to be demonized because you didn't go far enough on your conviction. You're going to be demonized because you didn't go far enough on your compassion. But at the end of the day, maybe that's what this time is going to call for. It's going to call for people who have the courage to say, I stand up what I believe, but I refuse to demonize the other. And I refuse to allow other people to do that. And we're going to pay a penalty for that. Well, and, and part of the problem is that a lot of this is driven by fear. 
Yes. So you have a lot of people who are afraid to say, no, our church doesn't uh, celebrate yeah. Pride Month. Mm-hmm. Yes, our church agrees with the biblical understanding of yes. marriage and sexuality and with the unbroken teaching of the church mm-hmm. for 2,000 years. That's what we believe. Instead, yes. it's, oh, no, we're going to have people call us bigots and they, <laughs> and they back down. And then other people who are afraid, oh, no, if I'm seen actually caring about my gay and lesbian mm-hmm. neighbor or That's I've it. got my gay or lesbian son or daughter that I'm not in a, a refusal to speak to them mm-hmm. or even just, you know, I'm not going to say that killing gay people is wrong. <laughs> you know, I don't agree right. with it, but I don't want oh, the Lord. backlash really that comes. Oh, Lord. Yeah. yeah. Then you yeah. end up with you're operating out of fear and it's really easy to see how different Jesus is from saying, just because I'm opposed to the Pharisees doesn't mean I'm with Herod. And just because I'm not with Herod, that doesn't mean I'm with the Sadducees. And just because I'm not with the Sadducees doesn't mean, instead he comes through and says, I'm bearing witness to something that transcends all of that. And until Mm -hmm. we can get that back, then we're just going to be operating out of who am I most afraid Mm -hmm. of right now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When in reality, if you're honest with people, you're not yeah. afraid of them. You yeah. tell them what you really believe yeah. and you really love them and you wish them well. That's it. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people who actually do respond to that. And just to bring it back to one thing, I think what you said at the very beginning of this gets to the heart of why it's a problem, which is you have to be able to hold these two ideas in your head at the same time, that Christ confronts and Christ invites. Amen. And what tribal culture war stuff does, what tribal politics always wants to do is it, it wants to gravitate towards one or the other of those ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we're in such a hot mess. It takes mm-hmm. thinking. It takes talking. It takes having relationships with neighbors yeah. to be able to hold two ideas in your head at the same time. And unfortunately, there are very few incentives to do that in the world we live in. That's Romans 3, the God who is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I mean, that's, that's the entire point of the cross, truth and grace together. All right, we will be right back. Before we end today, I need to correct the record on something. Last week, I was talking with Colin Hansen about Tim Keller. He mentioned that Tim was the drum major for many years. And I said that no one really couldn't imagine or associate Tim with Harold Hill, the music man. Well, my friend Trevin Wax sent me a carpool karaoke video a little later. It's on YouTube. We're going to link to it here. It's with Tim Keller and John Lynn for Hope from New York. And uh, the long story short is... I was wrong. You got trouble. Yes, you got trouble. trouble right here in River City. Right, right here in River City. With a capital P and that rhymes with P and that stands for pool. That stands for pool. We surely got trouble. Right oh, we got trouble. trouble. Right here in River City. Right here. Remember the main Plymouth Rock and the Golden Rule. Children, 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 children. Oh, we got trouble. You can listen to the whole thing at the link. Thanks for tuning in this week. We'll see you next week. Trouble, trouble, trouble. Trouble, trouble, trouble. With a T. That rhymes with P. That stands for pool. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced by Matt Stevens. It's hosted by Russell Moore and Mike Cosper. Azure Phelps is our associate producer. The show is edited and mixed by TJ Hester. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Additional design by Amy Jones. 
Music by Dan Phelps. Social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.